Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is our first podcast after our summer break and it's really great to be back. This week we're looking at mechanical engineering and in particular the important role that it has to play in helping us tackle some of the biggest problems in society. With me to discuss that is Dr. Alice Bunn, Chief Executive of the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. Dr. Bunn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So before we dive into the world of mechanical engineering, can you give us a brief introduction into the Institution of Mechanical Engineering, uh, who you are and what the institution does? Yes, indeed. So we're a membership organisation. We have some 120,000 members in about 140 different countries, so a real global footprint. In a nutshell, uh, we provide professional registration, ongoing training and development, really to support our engineers and make sure that they can operate really at the very top of their game. Um, secondly, and what's particularly relevant today, I think, we try to shine a light on the potential for engineering to address some of the most pressing issues affecting society today. So we are in a nutshell, you know, a go-to neutral, apolitical, best source of engineering advice. And as you say, it's the second of those issues that I'm keen to discuss with you today. Looking at some of those big policy issues and big policy challenges, maybe we can pick out one or two and talk about how mechanical engineering is really important to address the problems and to help tackle them. Dealing with climate change, for example, it's clearly one of the biggest challenges that we have going forward. How does mechanical engineering fit into that? <laughs> oh my goodness, how doesn't it fit into that? That's the real question. Gosh, where to begin? Let's think about transport. So we know that transport accounts for about 27% of greenhouse gas emissions. We have a, a wealth of expertise within our membership on transport. And of course, we've been looking at this for a long time now. So mechanical engineering has been responsible for improvements in efficiency. So think about car design, think about reducing drag, think about getting more mileage out of that tank of petrol, particularly topical at this moment while I speak to you. Now, of course, that hasn't been called tackling climate change necessarily, but of course it is because it's improving efficiency and reducing our demands for fuel. And, you know, it's really an engineer's bones to increase efficiency. So if we go beyond looking at those improvements in efficiency, we can, we can look to the future, we can speculate that most vehicles will be electrified. Um, I say most uh, because not all. Some have such high energy density requirements that they're likely to need synthetic fuels instead. Um, so that's why a report we produced last year recommended as well as substantial investment into battery electric vehicles. We should also look into low carbon fuel development and the associated technology development in combustion engines. And similarly, this year, we looked at the same issue in the shipping sector and identified that there could be retrofitting of wind sails to demonstrate how wind can be a primary source of power on the ships that are sailing today. So there are umpteen examples <laughs> that I could go into. And that's just transport obviously within climate change there's all sorts of different sectors up and down the piece one of them i was going to ask you about was power generation and clearly a need for increasing electrification different potential technologies for doing that and importantly getting more power generated more efficiently what's the sort of role of mechanical engineering in all of those different things 
Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Power generation and, you know, the energy sector at large is a fascinating topic for, for mechanical engineering, for engineers in the round. Engineers often talk about systems of systems. I'm conscious saying that, that that's not exactly headline grabbing or going to float out everyone's boat. But in a nutshell, engineers look at a, a whole system or a combination of systems. So if we look at power, if we look at energy, Effectively, we need to move from the situation that we have today, which is about a few large power stations feeding into a grid, to a situation where we're going to have many, many more smaller and local power productions, uh, typically through solar or wind power, all feeding into that grid. Now, to make that work, you have to look at the system as a whole. Fixing individual elements won't be enough to ensure a steady supply of electricity. So, the engineering mindset really takes that into account, looks for the interdependencies, looks for the trade-offs, looks at the synergies within an overall system. You know, it's not it's not just the individual widget, right? <laughs> it's how all the widgets work together. And that's when engineering can be so powerful. And how do we make sure that the people who are taking decisions, and I'm thinking both in government, but also in industry, understand what engineering can contribute to that and what it can't. When we're talking about changing new industries, when we're talking about adaptation and uh, mitigation of climate change and so on. Yeah, it's a really good point, isn't it? And I do think, of course I would say this, but I do think that's where the institutions, the learned societies can really come into their own. Because, you know, this is about unbiased advice. We have no axe to grind. We can just be the source of the, you know, best in class advice around engineering. Because I think as well as providing those technology solutions that I've just talked about, engineers can also test whether or not some of these ideas coming to our decision makers can really make a difference or not. Coming back to that point around systems of systems, our climate is the ultimate system of systems. And you do need that engineering mindset to be able to you know, really evaluate whether what you're proposing is going to make a difference or not. Now, today, we don't really have any firm industry standards around sustainable operations, around what is best in class. But I'm pretty sure we're going to see that soon. And I'm pretty sure that's going to come from the engineering community. It, it's, it's quite interesting. I was looking at, um, there was an Ipsos um, Mori survey recently, it reviewed people's trust in professions. It's called their veracity index. And engineers were really right up there at the top, um, even higher than teachers, which is maybe surprising, quite a lot higher than politicians, which is maybe less surprising. <laughs> but, you know, I think the engineers have a really, really strong role to play. And the fact that they have that trust from society, I think, is really important, too. Do you think that enough policymakers actually understand engineering? No. <laughs> I don't think they do at all. I think um, I think what you do hear as well is you often hear policymakers talking about science and engineering as if they're interchangeable, as if they're sort of the same thing. And I really think they're not actually, because science is about a very deep understanding of a particular thing or a process, where engineering is much more about bringing solutions, usually within constraints, right? Within constraints of cost time, reliability, for instance. So it comes back to that point around systems of systems. It's not looking at an exquisite detailed process, but it is very, very practical in how it considers problems. 
And it's interesting because within the government, there are all sorts of structures now to make sure that the government gets scientific advice. And you have roles like the government chief scientific advisor and different government departments have departmental chief scientific advisors. There's no equivalent for engineering. And I suspect that quite a lot of the engineering advice that does come, does come through those scientific advisors. But is there a, is there a piece missing or, or is there a need to sort of expand that role a little bit? I think, you know, we could always do more. And don't get me wrong, I think there's um, a small body of rather disgruntled engineers because they haven't been, you know, at the forefront of government's advice around, for instance, the handling of the pandemic. But that is changing and the advice is getting through. We were very proud to contribute to a report recently, which was looking at how we make buildings more infection resilient going forwards. And And actually, if you look at that, the heart of that is around recognising the fact that COVID is transmitted in air. So it's looking at droplet transmission. It's understanding more about the ventilation of buildings. Bit of a eureka moment, if you like. You know, way back when we understood that water quality was very, very fundamental in preventing the spread of disease. And now I think we're having that same eureka moment around air quality. So as we think about climate change, as well as being a global problem, it's also an opportunity, of course, an opportunity for countries who have the right skills and the right companies to sell their expertise, sell their products, sell their services. Is the UK in a good position to take advantage to this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's always an opportunity, right? So short, medium term, I think we've already had great success in offshore wind generation. Cost of electricity from offshore wind is about a third of what it was 10 years ago. And that's really been down to a combination of good engineering, but good long term policy from government. So, you know, when those two work together, we can really achieve a lot. But I think in the longer term, so fusion, right? Fusion is one of those solutions that's always just about 10 years around the corner. And we have been trying for a while. We've been trying for about 60 years. We've just we're just about to actually release a report into this. And and there again, I think if we can see that combination of long term investment by government in terms of the support for the R&D and the frameworks in place to allow the commercial sector to flourish, then we've got a chance of really, you know, leading the way commercially in the production of fusion energy. It won't be tomorrow, right? It's um, this government's always talking about moonshots, you know, fusion energy is a real moonshot and it's going to take a while to get to that moon. So we have to be slightly careful not to confuse fusion energy with a solution to the climate change that we're facing today, but it certainly could offer a more sustainable um, form of energy for us in the longer term. And do you think the UK advantage in fusion is going to be at the kind of the big type of reactors, like like the one that's being built in Katarash, or is it the sort of small reactors that could be built in a number of different places? Yeah, I think it's probably in the latter camp, to be honest. Again, in the institution, we've invested in some of those. Um, one company that's at that very early stage of producing the uh, the smaller type, if you like. And that's just recognition of the fact that, you know, you need to make interventions all the way along the supply chain. So, yes, we need continued government support for investment in the R&D, but also we need that early stage investment in the commercial sector to get over the, the hump, if you like, of commercialization to take those innovations into commercial market success. Let me take you in a slightly different direction, because one aspect of all of what we've talked about is skills. What do we need to do to 
train the next generation of mechanical engineers so that they're focused at the problems of tomorrow, not the problems of yesterday? Yeah, absolutely. And again, would you believe we did a survey into this recently? And, you know, certainly for employers, the top answers were um, AI, artificial intelligence, automatum, uh, mechatronics, which is a combination of mechanical engineering, control and electrics. And I suppose if you stop for a moment, what that tells you is mechanical engineering as a discipline in itself is is going to be there but it's not going to be as prevalent as it has been say in the past because across all types of engineering we're seeing much much more interdisciplinarity and and that's you know that's really positive i think actually there's you know any number of studies that will show you that you get the highest levels of innovation uh coming from careers where they've you know moved across different sectors so i think that's really really positive but i also think you know we're not necessarily looking at massive changes so why do i say that if you think about our likely energy transitions so let's think about going from oil and gas to clean energy well actually it turns out that you need quite similar skills for building and running of offshore wind farms um, compared to offshore oil and gas rigs so it's not all total reinvention but it is a repurposing perhaps of the skills in the sector the other area where I think we'll see an increase going forwards is in non-destructive testing. And we've seen a, a big surge in that sector already. We've got lots and lots of um, expertise within our membership around non-destructive testing. And again, if you step back a little bit, what that tells you is society itself doesn't really have an appetite for, shall we say, disposable products anymore. So non-destructive testing typically used on some of the really, really big structures, you know, the oil rigs, the what have you. But also beneath that, there's an appetite for things to endure. Um, we don't want to live in a disposable economy anymore. So I think that also tells you a little bit about the skills for the future. And it probably takes you quite quickly to things like remanufacturing. So thinking about the design of a product at the outset in a way that will enable it to be fully rebuilt to the original specification towards the end of life. Those are the sorts of things that I think are gonna be really important going forwards. I can see that being a massive challenge, but for new engineers being trained, there are clearly systems and courses and whatever. Obviously most of the engineers that are gonna be tackling the problems to 10 years from now are, already exist. They're already uh, working in industry. and. To what extent is there need for retraining, CPD, to tackle some of these things? I mean, from what you said, actually, some of the challenges are similar, so it's more repurposing. But is there a big CPD challenge in engineering? There is, but to be honest, I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't overstate it because the thing about engineering is innovation is a constant, right? So we are constantly looking for new opportunities, new ways to share best practice. It's really at the heart of the rationale for having an institution, if you like, because it provides that natural forum for, for networking and for learning from each other. So yes, we will need to retrain, there will need to be new skills, but I don't think we should be daunted by that. I think that's very much business as usual for a successful engineer. And do you think we have the right number of engineers? Do we need more? Do we need less? Yeah, we definitely need more. We definitely need more. And, you know, we know this and we know that, you know, the jobs of the future will require highly skilled, more technically trained workforce. And it's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because as we move towards 
manufacturing, for instance, being more automated, actually the requirement on technicians is, is higher because you need higher skills to be able to manage those processes. So I do think that, that we will continue to see a huge demand for engineers. I didn't think you were going to tell me that we needed fewer engineers, but I thought I'd better ask just in case. <laughs> just taking you away from, uh, we talked a little about climate change. One of the things that's changing, it seems to be changing quite a lot in the sort of a post-COVID world, is the way in which we're going to live and work and the way that cities are changing and more people working from home and what that might mean in terms of city planning and urban transport and a whole lot of different things. These are all areas where, you know, engineering seems to have quite an important role. And, and again, how can we ensure that engineers are involved in this conversation so that we're planning our cities and our structures for tomorrow, not for the way they were two years ago or five years ago? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think this is, um, you touch on something really important, which is the need for that um, conversation with society. Yes, with politicians and decision makers, but also with society, because you know, engineering is a tremendously powerful tool, but one has to understand the customer requirements if you can make the most of that engineering capability. Customer requirements here is society at large. It's interesting, a couple of weeks ago, I attended the Climate Assembly and their kind of rollout of their report. And I found that a really interesting approach because at the end of the day, how we live in the future is going to be what part of one massive change programme. And we have to understand what the appetite in society is for working at home, working in the office, living differently, different transport requirements. You know, we need to get a, a matching of the society's requirements with the engineering capability to really get the right answer. So given everything you've said, we're coming towards the end of our time. What would you say would be fantastic things that we could point to in terms of developing engineering? Uh, in, say, five years' time, things that we we should start doing now and we can look back in five years' time and say, yeah, we did that and that really worked? I, I think there is a massive job around um, awareness raising. So I would say that, right, because I sit in an uh, institution for mechanical engineers. But what I always say is if you want people to understand the power of engineering, don't start with engineering itself. Start with the things that people really care about. So today we've talked a lot about climate. We've touched on infectious disease control. We've touched on education, future transport. These are the things that people really care about. And I think it's really, really important to shine a light on the power of engineering to bring solutions to those issues facing society. So that's why here we're going to be launching a new strategy next year. You're going to see a real focus on that promotion of the impact of engineering to society. Um, it has to be done that way around. Very interesting. Well, we'll have to see how that goes and how things develop over the next few years. But certainly without engineers, uh, we're going to really struggle. I think that very, that is clear. Uh, that's all we've got time for. But uh, Dr. Alice Bunn, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for having me. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Alice Bunn, Chief Executive of the Institution for Mechanical Engineering. Next week, I'll be discussing what the UK's new innovation strategy means for UK universities. And my guest will be Professor Mark Spearing from the University of Southampton. Until then, goodbye.